Today's podcast is brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense. Backed by AMC Networks, Shudder lets you discover a library of horror films from around the world and across the decades. The service has something for everyone from the casual fan to the hardcore horror devotee. Shudder is available on the web, iOS, Android, Chromecast, Apple TV, and Roku for $4.99 a month or $49.99 with an annual membership. But listeners can get a free month by entering promo code PEAKS, P-E-A-K-S, all caps, at checkout. Go to Shudder.com today to find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere. Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I am Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And you are listening to part two of our two-part analysis of Twin Peaks The Return, the first two parts of the new show. Um, If you just listened to our first part, or if you're coming to us a little bit later, you know that we summarized uh, huge chunks uh, uh, of the first two parts, which were kind of presented as a movie. Uh, We talked about everything that happened in the town of Twin Peaks. We talked about everything that happened in a brand new location, South Dakota, which by the way, before we kind of like, uh, you know, finish on South Dakota, the Dakotas factor kind of prominently, I guess, in the larger mythology of Twin Peaks, don't they, Darren? Because uh, I'm suddenly reminded that in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, we're introduced to Agent Chester Desmond in, I believe, Fargo, North Dakota, right? Oh my God. Does this mean... Agent Chet Desmond might be making even like a spiritual reappearance. Jeff, you know I'm a big Chet head, as we call ourselves. <laughs> I'm a big time. I'm 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 the person who thinks that like Chet was the real hero all along. So that's that was in North Dakota. Yeah. So you're you're, you're totally right. We're 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 in in this weird way. We are returning to the Dakota region. Uh, not not for the first time in in the Twin Peaks uh, story arc. And that and and that that scene is worth. Just thinking about briefly from a firewalk with me, because when we are introduced to Chet Desmond in Fargo, North Dakota, um, as you kind of talked about so brilliantly in our podcast about that film, we're meeting him as he and a group of other of uh, FBI agents kind of dressed in that classic sort of like mid-century FBI agent archetype kind of like look are are busting these these teenagers that clearly look like they're they're rough trade kind of you know slutty girls and hard like a uh, drug dealing boys it looks like and and it looks like that they've been trying to corrupt the innocence of a group of school children on a school bus <laughs> and, and it's it's a very funny sequence uh, that is meant for comedy but also is this sort of symbolism of, of what the original Twin Peaks was about, which is this sort of like lost innocence that is sort of corrupting the world of Twin Peaks and, and, and what is responsible for that. So it's interesting then that that scene in that movie set in North Dakota, the heartland of America, um, the spiritual heart of America, if you will, kind of figuratively speaking, um, here in the new Twin Peaks, we are in South Dakota now, the uh, s- south of that, but still in the heartland and dealing with lots of grimy evil with the sort of perhaps metaphorical spiritual significance, um, adultery, betrayal, um, et cetera. So, well, and, and, and like, you know, just to continue that, like, I thought it was really important that 
the the longer we spent in that area and the more people were talking about Matthew Lillard's murder murder suspect they kept on mentioning that he was their kid's principal which also strangely yes. which also strangely connects back to just like the visual element of that great scene in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me just like this sort of you know humble school bus that has now been beset by all manner of of, of horrors both you know drug and sexual and you know governmental so yeah i i, I like where you're going there Jim. Let's move out of the heartland of America into the sort of spiritual underworld of Twin Peaks. Let's move into the Black Lodge. And this was all the scenes involving the Black Lodge here um, in these first two parts were an opportunity for Lynch just to really cut loose with visuals and strangeness and eeriness, uh, themes, ideas. It was crazy. And crazy enough, I I think I kind of understand it. But regardless, it was just a really wonderful, weird thing to feel your way through and be mystified by, and ponder upon. Beginning with the uh, which with which is actually the first scene, if you will, proper of of the show after the flashback to the Red Room um, in the original series where Laura Palmer says, I'll see you again in 25 years. We get this scene between Agent Cooper, um, still in his black FBI uniform, um, but this scene is shot in black and white, and he's sitting across from the giant, and the giant is is talking to him and and and, and saying that there's 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 they're, they're hearing something there's there's someone in their house or in their room or whatever and they they hear some weird scratching sounds coming from a phonograph um, and then he gives what sounds like to me a series of very giant like clues to Agent Cooper and then Agent Cooper flickers away um, like a, a a hologram that was never really there. Uh, what did you think of that moment? You know, I liked that there was this sense of going into this episode, how long will it take to get to the Black Lodge? That is certainly something that I felt. And, you know, that kind of brings up to me the overall questions of, like, you know, how important was what we saw in the season two finale? And, you know, is this something that the show will be really investigating? Fair to say, the show announced right away, yes. Like, this is where we are starting. The fact that it was in black and white... And the other scenes in the Black Lodge were not later on made me think that we may have to understand this as existing somehow out of time. I mean, like, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but like, this episode really played with time in a very explicit way that I'm not sure we've really seen before in Twin Peaks. Um, you know, what he said, the giant, was, you know, something about 430, something about Richard and Linda, something about two birds with one stone, which I thought might be a reference to the kind of double murder that we see later in the episode. Um, or just, you know, the eternal duality of this show, two birds with one stone. What does that mean? I'm thinking of this right off the cuff, Jeff. Does that mean that to destroy the Black Lodge, you have to destroy the White Lodge too? Just That just came to me. We'll see if that goes anywhere. Uh, and then, yeah, the the disappearance of Agent Cooper... At the time, I was like, oh, I guess... What I literally thought in that moment, Jeff, was, oh, like, so Cooper disappears from here, and we're now going to see him 
back in the real world. But then it was very clear that no, 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 like Dark Cooper is in the real world. Our Agent Cooper, certainly the Agent Cooper who we love and cherish and want only the best things for, he was kind of right right where we had left him. Um, you know, how did you kind of feel about there was that initial scene, Jeff, and then there was like the Black Lodge sequence, which just felt to me so alive and so just dominating for my thoughts after finishing the two-hour premiere. Well, you know, uh, the scene with the giant, why was it in black and white versus sort of the vivid colors of everything else? And, you know, what we know about the giant is that the giant gives you clues to help you navigate the real world and understand how things are playing out. So, I agree. My my initial thought is, oh, he's going to flicker out of the Black Lodge and then rematerialize in in, in the real world, um, but that that didn't happen in this episode. But I do wonder if the significance of that scene is to say, but it will happen. And 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 I would definitely say that by the end of this Black Lodge storyline, we might be seeing Cooper on his way toward that. It made me wonder if maybe that scene with the giant. Again, because as you note, the show is going to play with time. And in fact, there's a huge clue, I think, um, in, in the Black Lodge sequence itself, where it's essentially announcing that we're playing with past and future and which is which. But it could be that that black and white moment represents a scene that is actually downstream when maybe Cooper is out in the real world and maybe the the giant kind of uh, pulls him into another space. Maybe this isn't even the Black Lodge, Darren. Maybe he pulls him into a different kind of psychic space as sort of a sidebar. Here, let me give you some clues as you're out there in the real world on, on your journey. Maybe he's pulling him into the, to, to, to the, to the red room, into the Black Lodge. Uh, and the reason why it's in black and white is that it's a, um, it's a, it's a point in the future when it's in a different spiritual condition. Maybe it's in crisis. I'm not sure. Are you suggesting this, this may be taking place in the gray lodge? <laughs> there is a gray lodge. Oh, interesting. <laughs> black lodge, white lodge, gray lodge. Yes. Good point. That's, that's, that's nice. So yeah, Darren, let's move on from here in terms of unpacking what happens here. But I do honestly forget the flow of scenes through the the, the Black Lodge. Um, the first one that I'm really remembering off the bat is is his interactions with Laura Palmer. Is that possible? First, there is he's sitting in his favorite seat and he's talking to the one armed man. And the one armed man says, "Is it future? Or is it past?" Then. From there, we move right into that Laura Palmer scene, which to me, I mean, Jeff, I'm sure you felt this. You've studied that original Laura Palmer scene much more than me. The resonance just on a visual level and the sense of sort of reenacting something but also adding something new um, was remarkable. And just, man, seeing Cheryl Lee and just the, you know, so much of, I think, the interesting thing about this season is going to be just kind of like time and, you know, how people have aged and, you know, what that kind of means. And seeing her again, we talked about this just, just briefly in our last episode. Man, that was a nuclear bomb going off, right? Like, that was just like, wow. Watching it in our theater, I just felt like that was a real take-your-breath-away moment. That was a great scene. And that moment where, yeah, they're, they're sort of reenacting and rehearsing their lines from the previous dream in the original series. And I almost got the vibe that maybe they've had this loop, this, this conversation, this, this stuff with Gerard and the stuff with, like, with Laura might be happening on a loop 
and this is what Cooper has been doing for 25 years in the Black Lodge, and we're about to see the story of a breaking in that loop. But yes, like Laura comes to him, you know, like, are you Laura Palmer? Like, I, I, I feel like her sometimes, but sometimes my arms bend back, and then he asks her again, but are, you know, who, who are you? And she goes, I am Laura Palmer. And he says, I believe, but, but Laura Palmer is dead. And then she says, I am dead. And just the intensity of these scenes, the intensity of Cheryl Lee's performance, the pacing of this scene that allows for space in between the lines that lets us feel the intensity of their emotions. What I felt in this scene is just something that I think that Lynch tries to do in Firewalk With Me, kind of do honor to Laura Palmer and all the horror and the trauma that she suffered in this world and for the sake of this franchise. But here she burns with that anger. I am dead. Yeah, she was destroyed by all of this. And you feel that fury. And if you were disturbed by the violence against women in the real world, in this show perpetrated by dark agent Cooper imbued with Bob, this scene kind of maybe gives you clues that the show is self-aware that this whole fiction is, is hinges a lot on violence against women. And it is pissed off about that. And is maybe even about that. And so, yes, she's dead, but she's still very much on fire and full of life. And you get that really creepy shot where she kind of like takes off her face and she's just burning with light inside. It could be burning with anger. It could be her, her life force and her soul. Um, but she puts it back on. So you get the sense of a woman who is dead, but her spirit is very much alive, but she's trapped in this limbo place. And maybe she wants revenge and maybe she wants justice. Maybe she wants to have a life back. Or maybe she just wants to move on. But that was just an incredibly intense scene. And then it ends in an incredibly surreal, nightmarish, disturbing way. Lots of floating faces in this first premiere. You know, the the floating face of the man in the prison cell we mentioned. The face that has been literally removed from the rest of the body in Buckhorn. A lot of faces off. Not sure what that means yet. Um, she has said, the, the full quote was, I am dead, yet I live. Which I interpreted, Jeff, briefly. I was kind of like, oh, well, that's that seems positive. Like, that's okay. And, you know, maybe, you know, you know, does this mean like her spirit is still alive? Like, does this mean that, like, you know, in some way, uh, you know, I had written about this, but one of our great listeners wrote in with the theory that this season will take place in an alternate reality where she is still alive. And I was like, okay, yeah, like, this seems nice. I literally thought to myself, Jeff, wow, it seems like Laura Palmer is in a good place. And then right <laughs> as I was thinking that, I, I, I don't even know like how to really properly describe it. Like, Just the whole entire room starts shaking, and she just starts screaming. And it, it's a very different scream than you know what sticks in your head from that season two finale is that moment with the figure that seems to be her doppelganger and just the tremendous like sense of malice that comes from her when she screams. That was not the sense that I got here. This seemed like it was 
true, genuine horror. And then, like, in an effect that, like, a lot of stuff that happened in the Red Room, there was an effect that happened that looked kind of goofy, but that actually worked for me, just in terms of being such a kind of, like, pulling me out of the kind of usual austerity that I'm used to seeing in the Red Room. She kind of just gets, like, pulled up into the sky. Was was that what you saw? Am I kind of, like, describing that with some amount of, like, ac- of, of actual fluency? Yeah, I really couldn't. I think that moment was really up to interpretation. I couldn't tell if maybe she was ascending out of the Black Lodge and we will never again see Laura Palmer in this narrative again. It could mean that she is still prey to higher forces here in in this sort of like supernatural hell that that plays with her, that torments her, that decoheres her. It was it was a haunting moment. I understand what you mean by sort of the effects being a little goofy, but it was incredibly effective. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, from there, the entire lodge itself, or what we think is the lodge, starts to shake. The curtains disappear. We saw that white horse again, the white horse that appeared in Fire Walk with me, and I believe that Sarah Palmer saw the white horse at uh, some point. Um, but then we're back to... The one-armed man again. And, and I, I feel so strongly what you were saying, Jeff, that sense of repetition. And, and I'm reminded that I believe in the opening credits, at least of this episode, there's that moment where we're kind of seeing the floor of the Black Lodge and it's spinning around. And there is this sense of this constant repetition. It's like, um, oh, what was that book they re- what they referenced on Lost? Uh, the, the Invention of Morel or something like that, where there's just people on an island that are specters doing the same thing over and over again but then things do change uh because you know dale is kind of told you know it's time for you to go and then they see oh god jeff this is all we (laughs) talked about this is all we talked about me and my fiance as we were kind of walking to the to the after party uh we saw a character who she described as the tree with a thyroid on it I think it was a brain, but then it was also talking. So again, we'll just say like ambient piece of flesh. Um, the tree with a brain on it. And this was the evolution of the arm. And, uh, you know, I, I think like we can say with some clarity, um, this is meant to be the figure that we once kind of knew as the man from another place. It said it was the evolution of the arm, said I am the arm and I sound like this. And it made the sound uh, that that character made <laughs> In in uh, fire walk with me and, and, then- and here right, before you go forward here is where David Lynch telling everyone to watch fire walk with me really starts to pay off yeah. because you, the only way you understand everything that you just said was if you watched a movie that no one saw. <laughs> <laughs> this whole like, this whole thing, this whole new Twin Peaks season, it's just about getting people to watch Firewalk with me. That is the right. main mission statement. The, the whole the whole the whole point of the re- whole reason why David Lynch is doing 18 hours of television is because this cinematic artist wants people to go back and watch one of his misfit works and love it. So, <laughs> but so uh, what I found interesting about this, Jeff, and you were kind of speaking to this earlier, to think about kind of feeling like you get what's going on in the Black Lodge. This almost seemed like 
this was a very explicit attempt to reset the stage. The tree with a brain on it, we'll call it the evolution of the arm because I just love that phrase. Um, the evolution of the arm says, uh, do you remember your doppelganger? And we got this sort of very kind of previously on Twin Peaks flashback of young Agent Dale Cooper uh, be, you know, being chased through the Black Lodge by his doppelganger. He says, he must come back in before you can go out. So, so that that to me that was like the clearest bit of statement making that we'll ever get from this world that like this guy must come back in here before you can leave. You're right. It was the closest that we got in this show in which the series is actually kind of like suggesting this is what the show is about. <laughs> you know, like we're creating this huge landscape, uh, this, uh, uh, this huge story that's in many different cities, lots of stuff going on. But ultimately, at least for all the series, or maybe at least maybe the first half or a huge chunk, it's about Agent Cooper learning a way to get out of being held hostage in this limbo where he's lost a lot of time, lost a lot of memory, lost a lot of himself. But if he could find a way on his own or through proxies in the world to manipulate Dark Cooper to get back into the Black Lodge, then he could finally exit. Yeah. We're in this moment where, and I say this truthfully, I feel like I'm grasping what's going on here, or at least like I'm loosely understanding that we are being pointed in a direction in a way that I'm not sure, I, in a way that I'm not sure I always felt with scenes kind of set in this realm. Then uh, in the next sequence set here, there's a sense that like everything is like shaking. There seems to be an earthquake. Uh, I believe it's now that we get to that we get the one-armed man saying Bob, Bob, Bob over and over again. Um, and uh, I think it's right here, Jeff, where Dale Cooper, as he's sort of going through all the various red curtains again, he finds Leland Palmer, and it's Ray Wise looking horrified we, we can interpret that this is leland palmer or at least he doesn't have the sort of scary white eyes that the leland we saw in the season two finale had and i don't know about you jeff um just as far as like single sentences in this episode that really stick out to me and that kind of even kept me up late last night leland palmer turning to dale cooper and saying find laura uh, really kind of set my heart racing a little bit. Um, what did you kind of think about about that moment? Was that just a random bit of weirdness or is that a real bit of scene setting that we should kind of focus on? You know, you're reminding me of that scene. I had actually kind of blanked that out, but I think that you are reminding me that that is, yeah, so find Laura. Like, so when Laura got yanked up into the heavens there a scene or two back, uh, scratch my speculation that we'll never see her again. Clearly, she is someone to be found. Uh, was she taken out of this realm? Is she out in the world too? Um, is she in another part of this realm? And he has to liberate her before they can get out. Maybe they can get out together. But I think that that was a very important piece of information that we got. Yeah. Um, and again, from here, from here, just stuff's going crazy. And it says sort of like in this sort of, you know, backwards, forwards talking, my doppelganger. 
we then see Dale uh, has sort of gotten to what seems to be the final corridor of the Black Lodge, the, the final corridor of the Red Curtains. He, he kind of peeks through the curtains, and what he sees is this God's eye view of Dark Cooper driving through what looked to me like the desert. Like, I, I kind of interpreted this to mean that he was driving to Las Vegas, uh, maybe just because Las Vegas is also a place in this season, and I'm trying to hold on to any sense of a reality here. Um, I think- I, I like that. That's probably a good theory. But he he sees Dark Cooper, and you know, unclear to me what he wants to do. Is he want to leave? Is there some way that Dark Cooper could actually? I honestly thought for a second that we might get like just a scene of Dark Cooper just driving the car into the Black Lodge. Um, you know, kind of like <laughs> like you know, just like 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 blast through multiple realms of uh, red curtains. Um, but instead. <laughs> Instead, we got the the doppelganger. God, I love this show. The, the doppelganger of the brain tree suddenly appeared. So we see the evolution of the arm, which is a brain tree, but it's a doppelganger, and it just sort of like leans into Dale in the in a moment that reminded me a lot of some of the some of the great kind of like effects work in the first Evil Dead, like just this crazy like moment of leading in, and it just yells at Dale, non-existent, and then. Um, um, you know, again, so all along, Jeff, here, I don't know about you, but I am feeling like, okay, like, I'm starting to get a handle on the Black Lodge. Uh, then the chevron flooring underneath of the lodge that, you know, we've, we we kind of come to know and love that originally appeared in Eraserhead, the black and white lines start to shift and kind of grow and almost seem to kind of swallow Dale. And so, to me... What a what a wonderful thing to have happen in a, in the same episode. I think I get a handle on the Black Lodge, but suddenly now people are being pulled up and down. Th- that felt to me like this statement of you know there are literally more dimensions here. Like you've you've only seen the x axis of this thing, but now you know Laura Palmer is being pulled up the y axis and Dale is going down the y axis. And I, I just thought that as far as you know. We talked about this, but my my concern going into the season was always like, ah, you know, like, I hope we haven't seen all of it. I, I hope that there's a sense that there's still much more to this kind of realm that, you know, we haven't that we haven't yet seen and, and we'll get an inkling of. And, and that, that is certainly what I experienced uh, in those moments. Um, but how yeah. did you, you kind of feel about how Dale left or perhaps entered into a deeper realm of the uh, Black Lodge? Yeah, the questions that I was ha- I had in that sequence is what is causing this seismic event that is causing the Black Lodge to literally crack open and turn those chevron markings on the floor, this sort of zigzag looking pattern into actual cracks um, in, 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 in this spiritual reality, causing uh, Cooper to fall through and then plummet into an abyss. Was this caused by, you know, the doppelganger of the evolution of the arm? And what was was he causing this to sort of eliminate Cooper from the Black Lodge so as to stop him from escaping or triggering a series of events that would cause Dark Cooper to come back in? Was something else assaulting the Black Lodge and causing this? Was it 
was it Cooper himself? Was it Laura Palmer? Was or some other force responsible for this? So yes, is was this an attempt by dark forces within the Black Lodge to destroy Cooper um, and prevent him from escaping by essentially eliminating him, or was this someone triggering a jailbreak for Cooper to get out? Regardless, he plummets uh, in, into the abyss, and perhaps he's going to fall forever. And then we get this great shot where he falls and he falls and falls and splat he falls on the roof of a manhattan building in new york and let's talk about what that means in a second um i think um uh when we talk about what happens in new york but let's talk about what happens after that if we can darren real quick uh which is that um we see a moment here in New York where Cooper is briefly held captive or trapped within a box. And then the box starts telescoping in and out madly. And then he disappears again and keeps on plummeting. Um, So that's the last we kind of see of Agent Cooper in this story. But I do want to pay attention to something where... You know, he falls out of the Black Lodge, he lands on this building, he gets trapped in a box, he falls out of the box, he keeps on plummeting. But I want to say, Darren, that the very next scene after that, you're kind of expecting a smash cut where Cooper arrives somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Just as he did in New York. But we don't get that. But what we do smash cut to is the home of Laura Palmer. Yep. And that could just be the narrative just doing what it's been doing all, you know, two hours long, just smashing us to one locale after another and all of these scenes. But I'm wondering if it was a clue to where Cooper's fall is ultimately leading us to. I think I think you're absolutely right. Uh, And you're reminding me that when it cut from him falling through space to the home of Laura Palmer, to Sarah Palmer, kind of being very lonely watching these animals fight. I immediately thought one of two things would happen. One, like Cooper was just going to like fall onto her coffee table. Like I, that, that seemed very much within the realm of possibility. I also thought like, uh, you know, there might be a moment like in the international assassin episode of the leftovers where like he would just appear on TV and, you know, there'd be like, you know, people behind him dancing like, Hey, Hey, like, like Sarah, like, uh, you know, you got to do this. You got to do that. But, but what you're really reminding me, Jeff, and this is very off the cuff right now, if we presume that he that the direction he's falling in and you know we should say that like you know you get that scene with Sarah Palmer and that goes straight to the roadhouse and the roadhouse um which we talked about a little bit in our previous episode you know there's the chromatic singing there's a strong sense that like that is the town of twin peaks and so it does feel certainly as if dale is kind of moving there now now i want to linger here for for 2 seconds jeff because one thing that i didn't get to uh, when we were talking about the scene before was the lyrics of the song that the chromatics were singing are very, very interesting. The lyrics are, uh, Shadow, take me down. Shadow, take me down with you for the last time. You're in the water. I'm standing on the shore. Still thinking that I hear your voice. Can you hear me? Just, you know, to broadly take things out here. You're in the water. I'm standing on the shore. This is a series where people are often found in the water, dead. You know, thinking that I hear your voice. This episode began with the giant and and Agent Cooper seeming to hear someone. And it just, it felt to me as if, you know, if we assume that 
Dale's falling was not just a sort of, you know, dreamlike moment. If there was this sense of falling to Twin Peaks, falling, which, by the way, I think is the name of the theme song of Twin Peaks. I'm not going to go full number 23 here, people, I I promise. I'm just sort of like, you're drawing some conclusions. I kind of wonder if in the same way that Bob in the original series was a figure who was able to sort of walk into people. I wonder if that's something that Dale will be able to do now, or if, if, if that is how we'll kind of see him reappear initially, um, and if, if that's why we cut straight from him to Sarah Palmer, to someone who is so tied in with what brought Dale here. You've yeah. captured my imagination for the possibility that he did fall into Sarah Palmer. <laughs> that, that, are we going to get now several scenes where Sarah Palmer becomes a big character and where she's she's wandering around her town and then we're going to get to this great moment at the end where she looks in a mirror and it's Agent Cooper staring back at her. Yes! Yes! Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, like and and, and how how interesting too would that be as just sort of an act of mirroring if like in the first permutation of Twin Peaks. Here was a town that seemed nicer on the surface, but there was this kind of lingering dark spirit. If now it's sort of flipped, if it's like, here is this town that we know to be like a bleak representation of many other things in this now bleak world, but there is this sort of spirit lingering here that is still somehow, you know, this force for good. Uh, And, you know, then that would give Sarah Palmer many more things to do, which I would certainly very much appreciate. But, uh... Wait, 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 wait before we move out of the Black Lodge and we move into actually what might actually be my favorite sequence in the whole show. I just have to uh, give you my joke about my, my, the first thing that I saw, thought and even said to myself in the theater watching uh, Braintree, I am Groot. So just <laughs> thank you very much. I'll be here all day. <laughs> after, after baby Groot, but before... Uh, adolescent teen Groot. There was Brain Tree Groot. (laughs) You're listening to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. If you're fans of the dark horror and bizarre strangeness of Twin Peaks, be sure to check out Shudder. It's a premium streaming video service backed by AMC Networks, devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense. They have great films on here, whether you want to find a classic suspense film, a cat and mouse thriller, good old-fashioned monster movie. They have Frailty, directed by the great Bill Paxton, an absolutely fantastic horror film I recommend everyone see. This week's Shudder highlight is Yord Scott, a 10-episode folk horror series about a policewoman named Eva who returns to her hometown seven years after her daughter's disappearance to investigate a new wave of vanishing children. There are secrets in town, supernatural secrets, something strange deep in the forest. If she exposes what's going on there, it could make someone or something very angry. Check it out on Shudder. For $4.99 a month or $49.99 with an annual membership, you can access Shudder on the web, iOS, Android, Chromecast, Apple TV, or Roku. But listeners of this podcast can get a free month simply by entering the promo code peaks at checkout that's p-e-a-k-s free month go to shutter.com today and find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere jeff new york is in twin peaks take it away (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna leave this to you at first (laughs) yeah so this sequence went from Taxing your patience to being, I think, 
brilliant. And it's, it's, it's a very interesting kind of storyline because it presents as something completely out of context. We have no idea why Lynch and Frost are telling this story, who these people are, why they're pertinent to the story. You almost get the sense for a while that it might mean nothing to the story as its clear meta implications emerge. Uh, you kind of wonder if it's the show talking to us about how to watch the show or maybe even talking about itself and our relationship to its, to, to the show and to TV in general and our changing nature of our relationship to TV in the 25 years since Twin Peaks has been on the air. But, uh, but then by the end, uh, through falling Agent Cooper, you come to understand how this, all this stuff actually might mean something to the story of Twin Peaks. But I went from being a little bit like, uh, like, what is going on here? Do I really like this? To kind of like really getting into it, to understanding then how Lynch is completely working me over in his Lynchian way, and then kind of like absolutely like flooring you with some absolutely scary stuff, and then ultimately indicating how it actually makes sense to the story. Couldn't agree more. It reminded me a lot of, um, for some reason, I, I was reminded very strongly of the scene at the bank from the season two Twin Peaks finale, where the joke about that scene becomes that it is just so long and that, you know, there's this sort of extraordinarily leisurely sense of movement that, you know, you hopefully get into, like, hopefully what's happening is interesting in its own context. Like, I certainly understand people being, like, frustrated with it. I felt very frustrated with it. I think that's kind of part of the purpose. And like that bank scene, where it led was a real punchline. And then there was also a separate punchline later. Um, right. But just to kind of, like, set the stage, we see a hole in a building and the hole leads into a glass box and across from the big glass box, glass cage, you, you may want to call it, there is a young man who is sitting on a couch. Uh, he's flanked by a couple of black lampshades. God, I hope Lynch gets into gets into selling lampshades if, if this whole filmmaking and a coffee thing doesn't work out. You know, uh, from where he's looking, and maybe I'm like totally just like no longer able to see things clearly. Although it was clearly a hole in the side of the building, it occasionally looked like he was staring into a crystal ball inside of the glass cage. Did you get that sense at all, Jeff? Or was it just sort of, there was a weird visual trick that happened whenever you looked into the glass from his perspective. It almost seemed like the hole looking out into the New York skyline was vaguely three-dimensional. Yeah, I mean, that whole visual, the whole construction of that room struck me as a allegory to be decoded. It's an allegory of the cave, if you will, you know, the man cave of this watcher, this young man who's sitting on a couch watching a giant glass box um, that is sort of like connected to what struck me as a portal window looking out outside. So you have these sort of like a separate layers of observing and planes of glass and stuff. So you have rooms within rooms within rooms, if you will. You know, like there's this man sitting in a room looking into a box 
um, that is looking out onto through through a window, um, looking out onto the world. And the other key part of all of this is that there's all of these video cameras in this this flat, this giant Manhattan flat, that have their lenses trained also on this big glass box, which you could almost kind of like characterize as one of those magician uh, act uh, cages where, you know, they kind of like, you know, uh, fill up with water and they put someone in a straight jacket in and like they have to wriggle free or whatever. It's that kind of glass box, Um, maybe a Faraday cage. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, But there's also all of these wires, all of these transmission devices that all the cameras are plugged into. And it also looks like there is a whole bank of like DVR recorders as well as a cataloging system for all of these digital microchip files. Um, What I got from this almost immediately, and I think it kind of bears out as we go on, is this sort of weird allegory for for TV watching, if you will. You know, Um, a, a couch potato sitting on his couch, staring into this box that is he's waiting for something to happen he's waiting for something to materialize something that might come through that portal window and so in this way we have this sort of like complicated metaphor for for twin peaks itself a a vision from outside of the world about the world that's about to materialize inside this box i.e our tv and we're going to watch it this becomes more apparent i think um as the scene progresses but this is sort of the visual that we're presented with this guy watching this box being directed to either change the film and the camera and then catalog it but then the doorbell rings yeah and uh you know I would just kind of add to that that uh, I thought immediately of the boy staring at the screen at the beginning of Persona, the Ingmar Bergman movie that you know David Lynch has been very influenced by, uh, which is kind of meant to be this sort of allegory for the movie watcher, one of many things it's meant to be. I also, because I'm really trying to embrace just Lynchian, the Lynchian sensibility of just kind of like, like going off of my first instinct. So I did mark down in my notes, this boy is us. Not sure what that means. I'm, I'm sure, yes. I'm sure somewhere, somewhere down the line in, in, in this podcast, that will bear fruit. But then the door rings and we get the beginning of this complicatedly rom-commy situation where uh, this boy is being visited by a gal named Tracy. And Tracy has a great sign that she is someone to be trusted in the realm of the Twin Peaks universe. She's brought two coffees. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, he thanks her. There is a kind of very imposing looking figure who is in this waiting room outside of this kind of bizarre warehouse where this boy does his work. We see that he needs to kind of enter in this secret code to get back in. Tracy kind of like stares over his shoulder trying to look at the code. Uh, He kind of turns to her and says, you're a bad girl, Tracy. It's very clear that no one can go in. No one else is, is allowed in there. You know, any sense that there might be some kind of, you know, coworker camaraderie between our man on the couch and the man waiting outside. You're, it's clear that they they don't really talk too much. 
Um, and, and perhaps even like that man outside is just there to kind of protect the door. Uh, Tracy then kind of takes the elevator down. He goes back into the room. Now from there, Jeff, uh, we see a little bit more business of him doing his work. His work seems to be largely that of a kind of technician. You kind of mentioned that there is the filing system of uh, you know what he's doing with these kind of like recordings. Um, we seem to be kind of moving into you know the next day or some some later time. Doorbell rings again. Boy on the couch goes outside. There's Tracy again with two lattes. Uh, but now the man out front has gone, and we linger on this in a in such a way that you know you, you may anticipate that the the fact of his absence is noteworthy. I mean, you know, he walks into the bathroom to check; man's not in there, and so without this sort of watcher, without this guardian there to guard the door, uh, the boy on the couch says, "Well, come on in, Tracy." <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I, I marked down some of the bits of what the man on the couch says. Um, you know, he mentions that he has been, you know, this whole operation is being run by some anonymous billionaire. He says that he's supposed to watch the box. He doesn't know anything about it. He's just doing this because he needs to pay for school. And I have to say, Jeff, he said that he has to report if he sees something in the box. Tracy, of course, asks, like, uh, we'll have you. And he says, no, but the guy I replaced, he saw something and kind of leaves it at that. Sorry, sorry if I'm going to completely jump all over an analysis. Jump on but, this. So, so just to rephrase what he's, what, what he's saying, he's saying that, Something happened before. Now we're waiting for it to happen again. Um, so that completely, for me, kind of communes with like the you know it is happening again. You know. So yes. anyway, go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Exactly right. And and so this is why like you know just experiencing this on a psychological level. You just have this strong sense that this guy is like the watcher. Is he the TV viewer? Is he perhaps a Twin Peaks fan? Is he, you know, how can we kind of interpret that? Like, you know, lots of possible points of analysis. He's sitting on the couch. And again, like, I can't stress enough, like, from the angle kind of staring at the couch, it kind of just looks like you're in, like, you know, some, like, teenager's, um, uh, you know, like, like TV room or something. Like, you know, there's, <laughs> there's this very strong, like, kind of homey sense that then when you kind of, like, go out, you know, go out to the broad scope and you see just all these like cardboard boxes everywhere it's very very kind of like interesting setup um you know they start to make out uh, or, or rather the boy on the couch says do you want to make out then they start to you know really really begin like having sex and so understandably they don't immediately notice that blackness has begun to congeal inside of the glass box uh you know as if in response to what they are doing or perhaps just coincidentally yeah. although i find that very hard to believe and i'm reminded of something you were kind of talking about jeff that like you know if there's some primal uh, strangeness in this new season of Twin Peaks about adultery and about romance and about male-female relations. And, you know, even, like, the one murder that we see in this episode is the murder of a man and a woman kind of joined together simultaneously. I completely get what you're saying here. The sin, if you will, that is sort of essentially being committed here is similar to an act of adultery. It's an act of faithlessness. Um, his job, very clearly, is 
is to remain faithful in the act of watching that box that he's married to it that he has he's supposed to keep on watching but then he brings this girl in and he's he's attracted to her and maybe he's kind of bored with all of this watching and like hey do you want to make out so he takes his eyes off the box so yeah, it's like if we want to say that something is triggered here, that, that something has been done here by the people on the couch to summon this evil, which is, is something that we have to talk about, but may not necessarily be the case. But the theme here for me is it's, it, it's either the act of sex, um, which gets you the sex by death horror movie trope. Or you get this sort of act of, of, of faithlessness, of breaking faith with his job, you know? Yes, absolutely. Um, something triggers what happens, and what happens is a figure appears in this sort of black fog. I initially marked down that it might be a woman, but then it seemed to me like it was sort of purposefully sexless. It was very kind of abstract, this sort of like white, like uh, mist within mist figure. They notice it. Uh, and it's kind of at that moment that the thing crashes through the box. And I really like talk about just, you know, true all time Lynch Hall of Fame horrific image. We don't quite see what happens. It almost kind of like hovers over them the way that like, uh, you know, at the beginning of Inland Empire, like the faces of the two people who are engaging in some kind of sexual act, like the faces are all kind of blotched out. It's like that, but we can clearly see that blood is just spraying behind them. I mean, it was, I haven't quite seen anything like that before. And that, that definitely lingered for me just as a single visual from this hall. Jeff I mean like and that's yeah and that's that's kind of where we leave them we think <laughs> <laughs> right I mean Darren real quick that that visual there at the end the the monster is assaulting them but it also like the darkness that's around it is with it too assaulting it and you just get the sense of like it's it's whipping its their, their faces just shredding their faces just blowing their minds against the wall and they're not I don't think they're screaming it's almost like they're passive as it's doing it and in that moment you could read it in so many different ways um, including like you know you, you, this visceral metaphor for a show that really wants to get in your face and get in your head and blow your mind um, if you take this thing that appeared in that cage in that in that box is sort of a metaphor for the show but yeah i mean my whole interpretation of that scene and that sequence if it's the show talking about itself at least up to this point it's it's instructing us that this is a show that you're going to have to be patient with that you're going to have to watch that it's going to take its time taking shape and form much like that thing in the box um, that it's going to dote on mood and menace and mystery before it kind of breaks out and gets in your face and kind of reveals itself to you. It also kind of like the whole sequence kind of like captures our own sort of dread of and questioning about what the heck this is. Is it going to all add up? Is it going to be good? Um, so it reflects back our own kind of like interest and curiosity and fears about Twin Peaks The Return. Um, 
it's a really complicated bit of business and you could completely see it as this sort of thing that is just the show talking about itself but then it starts to reveal itself as actually very important to what seems to be the emerging mystery mythology of the show because as we sort of teased earlier dale falls from his perch inside of what we may term the Red Room or the Black Lodge or whatever. And he then lands, I believe, if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, kind of outside of this hole in the building that leads into this strange glass box. He kind of lands on what looks to be almost like, like some extension of it. And you just see him kind of sink through... And he moves in and he's kind of weightless. Uh, you know, people who love Twin Peaks may think of that moment in Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, when Leland Palmer is suddenly weightless inside of uh, the Red Room. He is sort of in there floating. He's clearly very confused. That's when, you know, the, the strange telescoping happens that you mentioned, Jeff. But, but... While that's happening inside of there, and while uh, you know he's sort of inside of this room that we've come to know, we get a very specific moment where we then cut out and see again Tracy and the boy on the couch having that conversation about how you know that's strange, like 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 the man left. We see him kind of go back into the restroom. So we're we're sort of orienting ourselves time wise, and we understand that what happened here with Dale happened while you know. To your point, while the man left his post, while he wasn't doing what he's supposed to be doing, while he wasn't staring at what's happening inside of the box. And which is to say, and also, this happened, Cooper fell into that box before the evil thing that congealed in the box took shape, broke out, and killed these two kids. So Cooper falls in, then disappears, then this thing falls, uh, emerges, kills our kids, and leaves. So I think that timeline, uh, which, by the way, structurally speaking, within a David Lynch movie uh, experience, we get another example of, of, of Mobius strip storytelling akin to Lost Highway or maybe even Mulholland Drive, where that this idea of, of, of stories told out of order and then syncing up with each other at the end, if that makes sense to you. That, that totally makes sense to me because it also brings up something else I was thinking so strongly about this sequence, which relates to Mulholland Drive. It really made me think, like, are we meant to understand what's happening with the boy on the couch and Tracy? Is this, like, some other world? Like, yet some other world? And does the fact that Dale sort of falls into this from an already separate realm of reality, like, what does that mean? Like, I, I was thinking very strongly, Jeff, like, to follow this thread of the idea that the boy on the couch is us, the audience, watching. Like, is this meant to be, is Dale kind of, like, you know... In, in the same sense that Mulholland Drive, you're kind of moving between like the world that this woman wants to live in and the world she does live in. Or in Lost Highway, there's a very similar movement on that kind of Mobius strip from like what we may interpret as reality to how one character chooses to interpret reality. Like, are we kind of seeing that here? And are we meant to understand that there is some kind of breakthrough happening? Um, you know, not by Dale, but that perhaps he somehow causes that. And, and you know, following that, it's clear that 
at least for 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 poor Tracy, that breakthrough is not a positive thing. That like yes, it is blowing <laughs> her mind, but also that this monstrosity that is being unleashed that seems to follow. I'm using seems very strongly here. Seems to follow in Dale's wake is not something that is necessarily a positive thing. So I just like feels like there's a lot to chew on here that we may understand much more uh, after we watch the next two episodes. But I just, I love that having established what, what you very accurately, I think Jeff described as like this Twin Peaks season's version of the allegory of the cave, this thing that seems to work on a purely kind of thematic level. I, I loved the kind of chutzpah of then being like, oh no, but also like Dale Cooper appears in this, in this glass box too. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, Darren, just a few thoughts to, to finish up that, that whole sequence and some questions that I'm having. One is then, and we're, we're entering into the area of theory. And if you don't like theories and you kind of want to just experience this as a story and a mystery and just kind of feel it out and not be spoiled by conjectures, then maybe turn off this part of the podcast. So I want to be um, sensitive to that. But here's some questions and theory-ish questions I'm asking, which is then, what then was the whole purpose of this box? Is the whole point of this box, is is there someone mysterious in this world, maybe someone that we know from Twin Peaks lore, or uh, some new character, are they trying to trap a Black Lodge entity? Are, are they waiting for something to happen and they're trying to like pull something out of the Black Lodge? Are they trying to pull Cooper out of the Black Lodge or are they trying to pull something else? So, so what is the whole point of this thing? And is this mysterious billionaire character who built this place and built this basic, this giant ghostbuster containment trap, if you will, to kind of like trap some kind of spectral entity? Because I think that's clearly the purpose of this thing. Why? And who are they? And what are they trying to accomplish? Second, I would just say that you know what it reminds me of as a, as a literary illusion is the way that Neil Gaiman's Sandman begins. Uh, it tells its story about these sort of occult uh, magicians that are trying to trap a member of the Endless who turns out to be the manifestation of dream. And they kind of pull him out of his realm and they trap him for a very, very long time over a period of like a hundred years or something like that inside a sort of like a magical circle cage. And if there is some intention to commune with that literary reference, I find that very uh, relevant to David Lynch, a guy who talks about stories as dreams and as sort of uh, capturing ideas that exist within dreams within him and put it on screen. So here we literally have a device that is meant to capture a dream, if you will. You know what I mean? Um, yes. Anyway, I, I, I digress. But second is, if we are to uh, intimate then that someone followed Agent Cooper out of the Black Lodge or some other supernatural place, what was that thing? Was it the doppelganger of the uh, evolution of the arm kind of chasing Agent Cooper out of the Black Lodge and then kind of taking some kind of shape? Is it Laura Palmer? Who is following Agent Cooper out of the Black Lodge there? That, that's a question I'm asking. Yeah, uh, I I feel the same way. Uh, I I kind of jumped to the Laura thing just because that would also add a interesting let's flip it all on its head layer to this. If in some strange way Laura Palmer, you talked a lot about like 
the anger that you felt, or at least some sense of anger that you felt from her performance, Jeff, which I found interesting. I think I was just so mind blown to see her that I didn't that I had not picked up on that. But interesting to imagine that she is in fact some kind of revenant figure, revenant in the old fashioned term, not in the bearded uh, Leonardo DiCaprio term. This revenant kind of spectral figure haunting this world in a very violent way. Um, I think that's like very interesting and very tantalizing for sure. I, again, pulling from mythology, I'm thinking of the Furies, you know, and even in the end of Sandman, like as, like if you if you read that story, is all about a sort of like furious female character exacting revenge on a world that did her wrong. And speaking of world, you know, let's kind of like end on this note if we can. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people who are coming to this Twin Peaks story and thinking like. Man, I just wanted a story about Twin Peaks. <laughs> I wanted a story that was set in a place that I love about people that I once knew and, and, and cared about and wanted to know what happened to them. Um, so why am I getting this huge cosmic story, a huge national story of, of, of you know, just all these places all over the country? And what does that have to do with anything? Can it just be about Twin Peaks? And, you know, I'm kind of sensitive to that. I wouldn't be too surprised if people who are disappointed with these first two episodes, they could probably be disappointed from any number of reasons, from the pacing to the mixed tones of everything to Agent Cooper's, uh, to Dark Cooper's wardrobe. <laughs> um, but also just because it's just, it's, it seems not necessarily to be right now a story about the people living in Twin Peaks. Um, and I'm sensitive to that. But yeah. I'm also, I'm intrigued by a story that kind of wants to be maybe a broader cultural, national metaphor, allegory about Twin Peaks as a spirit of our times, uh, making some kind of comment about our culture, about our, our national mood. And I'm interested in seeing if, if, if that will, will, will play out. We know, we know from the Mark Frost tie-in book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, you have this attempt to sort of really globalize Twin Peaks and bring in all of American history and all this occult history from around the world and sweep it all into Twin Peaks. Um, so uh, maybe Lynch's narrative is something similar too. Uh, you know, this is Lynch, a Lynch and Frost narrative. They wrote this whole season and Lynch is directing everything, but you get the sense very much this is a Lynch storytelling project. And, and he might have, you know, broader, bigger picture issues on his mind too. Yeah, I mean, like, just to kind of, like, uh, complete that thought, Jeff, um, I'm a big, like, episode guy. I I love when TV shows can do these just beautiful episodes, whatever the larger story is, when a show can just do an episode of television that somehow feels complete unto itself. And it's very clear to me that, like, that's just not what this is, and we knew that going in. There was a lot of talk of this being an 18-hour movie. I didn't know what that meant, and it's clear that it is very much just a thing that will kind of be flowing going forward um you know as someone who loved who loved so much of the original twin peaks even you know the latter parts of season two it did feel to me like you know what made that pilot so great was there was this long time getting to know everyone in town and just seeing them function even before dale cooper arrived you know there was a sense of kind of setting this foundation in this space with these people then moving into it you know that that's not what happened here like we may look back and say that 
there was a foundation being set. It's just that it was a much broader foundation with, you know, Las Vegas and New York and Buckhorn and Twin Peaks all kind of factoring in. And so, you know, I, I think that's different. I think that I'm very aware that I need to engage with this as one single running story. Um, but I did find that, you know, just to go back to that scene that ended the two hour event that, that we saw, the fact that it ended in Twin Peaks and it ended with, you know, Shelly and her girlfriends and, you know, everyone knows, obviously, that was a big Gossip Girl reunion because Maidchen Amick guest starred on Gossip Girl and Jessica Zor was on Gossip Girl. Shout out to the Gossip Girl and Twin Peaks fans out there. I'm sure there's got to be at least one more. Um, but, uh, yeah. it, you know, that moment and Shelly looking at James and just the music, it did feel to me like I was like, okay, like, if you came to this for a story in Twin Peaks, you know, this is not the show just paying lip service to that. Like, this is not, like, in the Star Wars prequels when clearly Lucas wasn't that interested in space battles anymore and, you know, in his in his defense but also to his offense, really wanted to do more parliamentary democracy. Like, you know, th- this didn't feel like it was dotting I's and crossing T's. This felt like, all right, like, we're back in the Double R Diner. There's a... There's dreamy pop playing and there's this, this implication of, of romance in the air like that that to me felt like at least if you're a fan of Twin Peaks that wanted that it, it might have taken two hours but we are there you know <laughs> right yeah that's a really good point and really great defense of of those Twin Peaks scenes which I kind of said in in our first part of our podcast um, didn't always work for me. Sometimes felt like intrusions. If these hours were more exclusively sculpted around uh, the stuff in South Dakota, the stuff in the Black Lodge, the stuff in New York, I think they might have. I, I wonder if they would work better and different, as I said before. That said, there's a great defense to be made about their absolute essential importance um, in these first two hours. And they accomplish a lot of things, as we talked about last time, including what you just said. They point us toward Twin Peaks. It is the story saying, yeah, we're, we're going to be a lot of other places. And we're going to meet a lot of other people. But ultimately, this heads back here. Absolutely. Uh, Jeff, before we end, let's just throw out random theory time. Who is the anonymous billionaire? I already know who it is. It's definitely John Justice Wheeler, Billy Zane, coming back to Twin <laughs> Peaks. It's happening. It's happening. Who do you think it is? <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a theory about that. <laughs> well, uh, if anybody has a theory about it, find us on Twitter, Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich. Send us an email. God, we really want to hear from you this week of all weeks. Peaks at EW.com. And while you're writing us really long, exciting, intense takes about the premiere of Twin Peaks, be sure to go to EW.com to read Jeff's full recap of it. Lots of stuff to dig into. No shortage of Twin Peaks content from your friends at EW this week we're gonna be digging into more twin peaks coming right up episodes three episodes four already available for showtime subscribers uh we'll be talking about those soon and uh we'll be talking about twin peaks throughout the summer looking forward to it 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks, brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense, curated by horror fans who have a deep love and respect for the genre, and it shows so many great films on here, films you never knew existed, plus some old favorites that never fail to frighten. Remember, you can find Shudder on the web, Apple TV, Roku, Google Play, Amazon Prime for $4.99 a month, or $4.99. with an annual membership. And don't forget, listeners can get a free month by entering promo code PEAKS at checkout. Go to Shudder.com today and find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere.